As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, this is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with myself, Ali Maxwell, with Liam Tharm, with Mark Carey and the returning Michael Cox. Welcome back, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed your Brighton episode last week. It was very good. Nice touch from you. A bit of international break travel for yourself. Thought you might seek out some winter sun, but you did the opposite. Winter snow. Winter snow in Sweden for Sweden against Belgium. But the roof was closed on the Friends Arena, so I can't complain too much about that. It was warm inside the stadium, but not outside. But yeah, Belgium are quite interesting, actually. I watched their other game against Germany, and there's a, a piece on the site about Domenico Tedesco and what he's done with Belgium, which so far, I mean, it feels really different to how they played at the World Cup. I mm. think I went to all three of their games at the World Cup, and they were quite bad, mm. if we're being honest. But this was... Brilliant. It was cohesive. It was exciting. There was a couple of young players who I knew little about having a great impact. So, uh, yeah, that's on the site now. It's a very eye-catching assist in that game. All three goals scored by Romelu Lukaku, who we may or may not be talking about later. Uh, In this episode, we are taking advice or taking a suggestion from David Lomax, who listens to the pod. I often ask for for people to tweet in episode ideas, and that is not an empty request, as we're showing here. David tweeted the right thing at the right time and really sort of captured our imaginations this week. So thank you, David, for this. He said, in the wake of Mesut Ozil's retirement, I'd love to hear a tactics pod about great players who were evolved out of the game by changing systems and demands that seemingly leave them nowhere to go at elite level rather than retiring when they're good and ready. He followed that with, I'm thinking of Schneider too, but I'm sure there are others and in other positions than number 10. For example, Lukaku looks set to have an amazing career, but no one seems to be able to find a place for him in the new world of nineless football. Sound interesting? Yes, David. Yes, it does. It's both topical, but also has wider and more historic tactical interest. We love it and we hope that we do it justice. How the mood has changed. Let's start with Meza Ozil. Michael, you wrote a brilliant piece after his retirement. Is what David says true? Is it fair to say that Ozil was evolved out of the game by changing systems and demands? Yeah, I think it's 50-50. I think there's clearly less of a place for a player like that than there was even 10 or 15 years ago. 
But I also think we have to look at individual aspects with Ozil. And I do think it is fair to say, and I'm not one of these who was, you know, watching him play and thinking just put in a shift. But I think it's fair to say that there was probably a lack of desire from him towards the end of his career, not just in terms of his on-pitch effort, but just in terms of wanting to play at the highest level. I mean, he. the funny thing about Ozil was, you know, for such a revered player, I'm not sure many people would know which club he was playing for before he announced his retirement. Like he, he, he kind of just, I think, faded in terms of his desire and his desperation to succeed at the highest level. But yeah, there's an element of the fact he wasn't the best uh, defensively. He wasn't the most diligent presser. So is that a part of changing systems and demands? Yeah, it Could is you a... get away with that more 10, 20 years ago? You probably could, but also you can just look at the individual and say, well, why can you not just play like Kevin De Bruyne does? I mean, Kevin De Bruyne plays as number eight and he gets away with it. Ozil has many similar qualities to him. It's, uh, yeah, maybe it's part of more of the job now to, to, to be working harder without the ball. But again, I think, you know, even 20 years ago, people were saying this about the number 10. You know, that you always have to adjust. Players always have to evolve to the, the demands of a current football landscape yeah no i agree i mean thinking about things on the pitch but off the pitch to your point michael i I looked into it he hadn't played at arsenal a single competitive minute between his final appearance in march 2020 and his departure in january 2021 and that's not just down to tactical systems and demands that have got to be an off pitch thing as well and i think that he was excluded from the fenerbahce first team last year which then he moved on from there as well so Specifically with Ozil, and we can come on to the nuances, but I think it was a little bit to do with attitude and things off the pitches as much as on it, which, um, yeah, Michael, your piece covered it really well. And correct me if I'm wrong, part of the reason he stopped playing for Germany as well was to do with um, issues about racism and stuff that he was speaking up against. Ended mm. up with him being effectively sort of frozen out. Um, but in terms of his style, I think even with the ball, he was never an intense player. He was amazing to watch because he could do things... Um, not like at walking pace, but, you know, cruising along the pitch that he would never seem to be sort of at a, a full sprint. His technique where, you know, he'd shoot the ball into the ground really well and manage to get it to bounce up and, and be so technically clever. And I think of that goal, I can't remember he scored against in Europe, but he sort of dribbles half the length of the pitch and ends up faking it to go around the keeper and then chips it over the defender. And, you know, Is it Ludo Goretz? I think it might have been. And um, yeah, the way like defenders are sprinting and sprawling and he is just going at what looks like 70% was, uh, it's quite incredible to watch. Yeah, that's a, a, a wonderful memory of Ozil's career. More broadly, you know, this may be a, a lack of intensity and that being perhaps more of an issue than it would have been previously. I guess that this is into the territory of, of heightened expectations out of possession, particularly for attacking players, being the, the first line of the press and uh, and the, the demands physically that that puts on players that maybe doesn't suit someone like Ozil. It's interesting that intensity, if you like, as a as a skill is both clearly a physical thing can you cover distance at what speed and for how long can you cover distance but it is also like an intensely psychological like the mental mixture of that as well i dare say there are players who have the physical capability Ozil may not have had that but who still can't or or probably won't put in the shift put in the work due to essentially a, l- a lack of motivation or, or desire. Th- those words which are difficult to, they're quite difficult to measure that. There was a great example uh, from the City-Leipzig game recently where City sort of adapted their press and had their wingers effectively pressing out of what was a 4-2-4. They had them really high and really wide. And normally against a team like Leipzig where uh, they've got a lot of central players, you'd expect teams to sort of funnel them, you know, sort of away from the wide areas. But they had this 
quite well adapted press and the wingers are pressing from the fullbacks back into the goalkeeper and Bernardo Silva must have made the same sprint from covering the left back to press the goalkeeper and the ball went back to him five, six, seven times and John Miller did a, did a great piece on this and um, Pep said after the game there's not many players in the world like Bernardo that can keep doing that and it's almost a thing of wanting to and enjoying that part of the game that isn't very attractive but I think one of the best ways it can sort of be worked to encourage the players is if you can do this really well, you get to attack more. This is a vessel to get you into better attacking positions, particularly for a team like City that face so many low blocks. But if you can win it in the final third, you're not facing a low block then. You've got two or three defenders more in the fun way. then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mentioned that about intensity because there was a really good piece on the site back in October by Sarah Shepherd, who did a piece that just headlined. Intensity is one of football's favourite buzzwords, but what does it mean? Nice. And it's quite, it's quite interesting. I'd never really thought about the fact it's slightly difficult to define before because I think we all know what it means. But actually putting it into words is, is kind of difficult. And it's it's a really good piece. There's quotes from some interesting people from Jamie Carragher, from Eunice Eideville, from Danny Higginbotham. And, and they kind of all are talking about the same thing. But it's difficult to find a synonym for. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely something that anyone that watches football thinks that they can see even from the stands or from TV the, the desire the tenacity the, the happiness to put in the work but we've spoken Mark quite a lot about actual physical data in terms of uh, how much ground someone's actually covering doesn't always tally up with the eye test it's you know there are still some serious biases that that the human brain gives you just in terms of deciding who's quick and who's not quick and sometimes based on the way that they move rather than the speed at which they move. Yeah, well, the Ozil example that you said against Ludogorets was a, is a good example of that. I think we spoke and we did a whole episode on the contextual side of running, um, making sure that you're looking at a player in possession versus out of possession just because a, a team is running more isn't necessarily kind of a good indication of quality because they might be chasing shadows at times. So it is a difficult one to, to contextualise. I think that Again, you could have a player who is like a Bernardo Silva. Those runs that he was making were also blocking the passing lanes and blocking the cover shadows, whereas you could show real intensity and just be two yards off the pace each time. And I think that's kind of what's... Everyone else thinking of Bruno Fernandes' pressing against Liverpool last year, which which was very active, but maybe not. There was a good video of Mohamed Nenny a couple of years ago. I don't know whether you saw that, where he was kind of just like repeatedly sprinting <laughs> between two players who yeah. were kind of just passing the ball past him. Which uh... it goes back to the old stories of when when trackable um, like yeah. training aids were, were brought in and players would put it on their dog or something so that the stats were up. And the when the sports science team looked at, I don't know why I've got Razor Ruddock in my head here. I'm not even. Sure. I think I might be mixing about four different stories here, but. I know that Pablo Zabaleta used to do it when the ball During went out. Throw-ins, yeah. During throw-ins, right. yeah. Break in play and you get a few high-intensity sprints in. I think it's just down to the fact that it feels so trainable and so, you know, it's not an innate, well, physiologically there are degrees um, obviously to which people can and can't do certain things, but you're looking at that at, you know, from an athletic standpoint, it's very different to what you need in football. Pretty much every player can train themselves to have a good enough endurance, you know, at Premier League, top end level to to go out and press repeatedly. Obviously, part of that is them wanting to do it. So I think it's why, you know, a lot of managers will speak about hard work and things like that, and however you want to label it, but effectively doing lots of high intense running, being physical, engaging in, in battles and duels um, and wanting to do that more than other teams because, you know, pretty much everyone can do it and it just requires consistent training. Some people can never play certain types of passes with certain feet, you know, can't always use their non-dominant foot as well. But like, this is something you can work on. Um, it just it just takes time. I mean, bringing it back full circle to the Ozil example, it seems that whether it is down to desire or physical capability, 
his sort of weaknesses defensively outweighed his strengths by the end. Because maybe not as much now, you can't really have too many players that you can carry, but maybe in years gone by, you could have someone who you built the team around and knew that you could minimise their weaknesses. And they were such a good player like Ozil was that you would be able to yeah fit the system around it. But now it's more that, well, in the, the final years of his career, it was more that the weaknesses certainly outweigh the strengths and he had to adapt and he didn't basically. And that was why his, his career sort of tapered off. This is more of a question than really a sort of statement, but do you think that's now down to coaches wanting systems that are effective when you can take players out of them and not wanting to build a Plug team play. Yeah, around a player per se, that it's a case of like, we want to make this whole system good. Um, and unless you're really, really, really good, I mean, PSG is a great example of this, this season, maybe of trying to make a, um, an individual-based system that like, it just doesn't feel as long-term sustainable. I don't know what you, you guys think of that. Well, I mean, as Mark was speaking, certainly Mbappe came to mind as someone who mm. is... <laughs> arguably the best player in the world, um, you know, in an attacking sense. But we've spoken repeatedly about how his slightly, um, well, his reticence to mm-hmm. do the work, so to speak, out of possession, it's annoying. <laughs> you know, it's genuinely like, it, it's a, it's a, it's the only negative thing that he brings. And to a fan in particular, and dare I say it to people within the game as well, it's hard to understand why there couldn't be a little more work being done on that front. Well, on the defensive numbers, we did this in our bonus episode, didn't we, recently about Kylian Mbappe. He didn't make a single tackle in the whole of the group stage of the Champions League. So it just shows his desire to actually put the shift in defensively was just absent. Back to the the death of the luxury 10. David mentioned Wesley Schneider, uh, which seems like a a nice name to bring up. We, We often talk about Mbappe. We've talked about Ozil before. I'm not sure we've spoken much about Wesley Schneider. Michael, is David fair to bring him up as an example of someone who was, you know, evolved out of the game? Kind of. I've got a bit of a thing about Wesley Schneider. I think he had a very, very weird year in 2010. I think his game completely transformed after that World Cup. So that season he went into, it was brilliant with Inter, almost as a pure assister, playing brilliant passes in behind the defence. And then he scored a couple of quite lucky goals at at World Cup 2010 and I think finished joint top scorer at that. And then when he came back to Inter, he was just shooting from 40 yards constantly. And it was like, you never used to do this the previous season when you had a really good campaign. So I thought Schneider was just a bit of an individual case. I think, to be honest, I think that performance of the World Cup went to his head a bit. And I don't think he ever really recovered. I don't think it was a tactical thing. But I think the interesting thing here is that the the two players, David Seitz, Ozil, Schneider, both had their best form under Jose Mourinho. And Mourinho, you would maybe consider a manager who, you know, wants everyone to muck in and do a defensive job. Certainly that was the vibe when he was at Chelsea and he had those wingers who were, you know, having to play defensively. Um, but he loved Ozil and he loved Schneider. Just, you know, Deco, probably a bit more of a hardworking player, but maybe you can say that that fits into what we're talking about, that Mourinho's style of football is a little bit antiquated and there's less room for players like that in the system of Arteta or Klopp mm. or whoever. And adding on to that, Harry Kane's sort of evolution into more of a nine and a half, closer to a number 10, came under Mourinho as well and sort of playing those types of passes. So I guess it doesn't always have to be that conventional player that we see between the lines. It's It can morph into sort of different sort of roles. Now, I'm intrigued that at both club and international level and I know it's very different at international level there's the great quote from Jesse Marsh about it being like two different sports but teams sort of playing what on paper looks like two number 10 profiles now um, often in sort of box midfields or at times they'll sort of rotate to have you know a central midfielder that on paper we say starts deeper but really plays also between those lines and I think the role then becomes a lot less what I would associate as the back to goal trying to receive and being that you know that, that main focal point but um, instead you're trying to make those sort of diagonal runs into the channels 
you're linking up with the wing backs or the full backs they're trying to sort of provide overloads and um, that then obviously helps out of possession because you can press more often you'll make sort of a, a front three so it's intriguing to me now that we're sort of moving towards more players in those sort of central areas and, and playing those roles and I guess it can link into the free eights sort of yeah. um, theory but two as opposed to one and then the strikers going the other way as we'll come on to from sort of two number nines to, to one it's, um, it's just sort of changed a bit in terms of the dynamic There, there are two England players that have just popped into my mind who who I think, if they're being pigeonholed, could be described as number 10s, Mason Mount and Phil Foden. But in the different interpretation of this role at elite clubs, neither of those players spend a lot of time on the ball in central areas, outside the box, threading through balls and, and creating chances. So is that is that a good example of the sort of player that we still think of as a number 10 type? He's not doing anything like what a number 10 used to do. Foden's an interesting one because if you were to look at, if you were to get a kind of heat map of all his touches since he started playing in the Premier League, I bet the average position would be as a number 10. But he's played as number eight, he's played left, he's played right, he's played as a centre forward. He never actually plays as a literal number 10. So it's like number 10 now doesn't mean you play at number 10. It means you play in all the positions around number 10. You can do any of them. Mount, I think, is an interesting example. I think they're actually very different players. Um, I think Mount is really appreciated for what he does off the ball in particular. But I also think he's probably the best of that generation of players actually receiving the ball between the lines. I think he's very, very good at picking up those, those positions, finding half a yard of space. I don't think he's that creative when he gets the ball. Compared to Grealish or Foden, I think he's less likely to provide a moment of magic. But it's so tough to find space in that zone now because there's, you know, your position block out that zone with two players. They're really compact. They're often really narrow. So you've got to be a real specialist actually receiving the ball like Mount to have any chance of doing anything from that zone. We're seeing a lot of wingers now sort of be retrained into that number eight role. I think Palace have done it with Eze a bit this season, who was also sort of conventionally a, a number 10. Harvey Elliott at uh, Fulham was a, a number 10 slash winger. Uh, Liverpool now playing on sort of a, a midfield three. And that, that was Southgate's sort of rationale. He said when uh, he did finally call up Madison again and said, we've been playing a 4-3-3 without the sort of number 10 um, sort of profile. It, it's difficult because I've always seen it more of a role than a position. Um, as, as Michael says, it's sort of, can you play across the width of the pitch? Often it's, you know, you considered to have sort of free roam. It's that, that luxury position. Um, so I wonder now how that then means this new generation of players coming through. If they are more players that have started out wide being dribblers. Um, and I guess if you've just learned and your style is, I want to receive the ball and carry it, that's going to mean your approach is going to be very different in how you interpret it. Um, and that might be a bit more necessary because I think defences are getting better. They're getting com uh, more compact. Players are more athletic. So you don't always have the, the time uh, and the space on the ball to receive it and play those passes. Maybe you do need to do what I see a lot of players do now where you receive it and you sort of still have your back to goal and then manage to turn one way or the other and you can actually dribble to get away from someone and make that half a yard rather than being able to play on the, the half turn per se. I think it all depends on the, the system that you're playing. I think if you go back to the, the Mason Mount example, he's been rumoured maybe with Liverpool and you think about... Rumoured maybe. Well, James yeah. Pierce piece yesterday. Really, yeah. S seems like they're keen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Bayern Munich have been <laughs> rumoured as well and they just think, well given everything that you guys have said about it as well, if he were to maybe make the, the move to, to Liverpool, given how wedded Jurgen Klopp is to a 4-3-3 system, you mentioned Harvey Elliott there as well, Liam, how much he was kind of in the mould of a number 10, similar to Fabio Carvalho when they were both at, at Fulham. And you think that within a 4-3-3 system, and it would be the same maybe international level for, for these players as well, that they, they're not 
fast enough or maybe strong enough to play wide in a in a front three. They're maybe not as durable enough or yeah, athletic enough to to be able to play within a left or right side of a of a midfield three. So they where would they find their strength? Their strength to to Michael's point as well is is picking up those little pockets of mm. spaces in tight areas. So you think, well, if there is no role for that, where would their strength lie? And I feel like they're very early in their career, but Fabio Carvalho and Harvielli have kind of been caught between a rock and a hard place in finding where their strength is. And you think, well, do they change, which is more likely, or does the system change and maybe they move to a 4-2-3-1 to maximise their strengths going forward? I mean, it strikes me that very specifically the right central midfield role in Liverpool's team would suit Mason Mount really well. We, we've spoken on the pod, Michael, about the positions that, in particular, um, Jordan Henderson, even James Milner, when he's played there, often pick up in possession when Trent is doing his thing and when Salah is is playing super narrow it's like there are loads of moments where you're you're like an old school right midfielder in a 4-4-2 in terms of the areas of the pitch that you're in and that strikes me as an area where Mount often seems to find himself either naturally or, or through instruction managers love him for the work that he does it all seems a bit too good to be true if you ask me that that exact position in that exact team and as Marcus said a position that probably could do with more of a sure thing yeah, it's a bit of a balancing role, isn't it? With Alexander Arnold and Salah, they do need someone to just provide the balance. So, yeah, makes sense. Any other number tens before we move away from this role who may have suffered a similar fate um, to Özil and to Schneider? Well, I threw Deli Ali's name sort of into the mix as mm. I think a slightly different star number ten. Uh, I sort of revere him more for his ball striking and good sort of link up play. I know again, he's an example of what we think from what we've seen is, is off the field um, issues as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you know how much you need a certain system and Spurs and how they um, evolved under Poch in particular, um, going from sort of that that four two three one more to sort of a, a back three um, and needing sort of different different types of number tens. But Eriksson thrived in that team as well, and obviously he's now someone who uh, is playing in a much deeper role which is I feel like a trend we've got used to seeing of players dropping deeper down the pitch um, as their career goes on yeah Deli Alley was a weird one I mean he played he played kind of a number 10 position but he didn't receive the ball between the lines much I mean he was kind of going in behind Harry Kane a lot to get long balls I actually thought he was quite good when he played in a deeper role I think he was quite feisty quite aggressive but yeah I think it's it's maybe not a tactical thing with him I, I agree with you um, I think Bruno Fernandes is, is quite interesting this season. He's often played from wide, which I don't think he really did in, in previous iterations of his Manchester United team. I think you just need that adaptability and that flexibility to play wide. Eriksson's another one who's sometimes played off the left or off the right. Um, I think the modern number 10 type players, you can put them there and they can still influence the game in the way they want to. I mean, De Bruyne, not so much anymore because he plays number eight, but he's often played from right for Manchester City and he's a really good crosser, so he can play that Played that job pretty well. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Okay, well, what about Romelu Lukaku? It was brought up by David uh, as part of this discussion. Uh, quite funny timing, Michael. You saw him score a hat-trick about 72 hours ago. So uh, is is he a fair part of this conversation about uh, players who have been evolved out of the game more because of changing systems and demands than their own quality or their own performance? I don't think so. I think he's quite a complex case, Lukaku. Um Great. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Well, the whole argument with Tuchel, I I get the impression Tuchel didn't really understand what Lukaku was on about. And I think, I gather he was quite surprised Lukaku did that interview because he hadn't said anything to him personally. I think Lukaku's issue is Lukaku doesn't see himself as a number nine. I think Lukaku wants to be like a Thierry Henry player drifting in from wide. I know he's worked with Henry at international level, of course. Lukaku's left-footed, so he wants to play from the right rather than the left. But some of his best performances over the years have come from that kind of inside right channel. So there's one for everything against Arsenal, quite famously, when he completely destroyed Nacho Monreal. I was going to say, Nacho has never forgotten that one. He, he played exactly the same role for Belgium against Brazil in the quarterfinal of a 2018 World Cup where he did almost exactly the same thing. And at Inter, well, let's not forget, you know, two seasons ago, he was absolutely fantastic for Inter in a title-winning season. He played as part of a front two with Latoro Martinez. And so he had that license as well to drift wide and kind of play in that channel. So I don't particularly think Lukaku fits into this. I, I think he's... Um, yeah, I don't really understand why it went so badly wrong at Chelsea. But I don't think it's because he's a pure number nine. Okay, well, I guess how many of, let's say, the elite clubs, the top 10 in Europe which is where he would pitch himself as well. How many could accommodate him as the player that he wants to be? <laughs> well, I don't think it's a ridiculous thing to suggest that if Liverpool wanted a Salah replacement, I think he could play that role. It would be a different type of role. He wouldn't be near the touchline so much. But yeah, if you want someone to run with the ball at speed, cut inside and finish with their left foot, I think he can do that. He can do that far more than he could be the Firmino role, for example. I mean, Darwin Nunes is playing from the left, you know, Lukaku could do the same from the right, probably not them both in the same team. But if it had been Salah to go instead of Mane, could you play Mane, Firmino and Lukaku? Yeah, I think he could play there. I think he's more of that player than he is a number nine. And also it was interesting. So it's, that, it's a lot about perception this, isn't it? Because I, I think, think so. I think there'll be people who hear you say that he could play off the right in Liverpool's 4-3-3, probably think like, nah, nothing like Salah. Well, it's because he's got the build of a striker, right? He looks like a number nine. And also just to make another point about that Belgium game, I was really surprised that after Hazard's retirement, uh, Lukaku's taken his number 10 shirt. So you had him wearing number 10 and you know who was wearing number nine? Leandro Trossard, who you would say is much more of a number 10. I know he's played up front as well. But yeah, I think Lukaku, I think Lukaku is like an Omri. I think he wants to be that kind of player. I do think there have been a few examples chucked up 
at the top end of football at the moment of how players perceive themselves, where they want to play versus where they're actually playing. We've talked about it with Mbappe. Objectively plays better off the left now, so let's stop trying to make him play as a number nine. Um, are there any other strikers or type of striker threatened by extinction or who have been booted out of the game altogether? I would say the kind of little man, when there was a big man, little man combination. So the Jermaine Defoe figure, for example, I think you think of Jermaine Defoe. Pray for Paul Dickov. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's the kind of player who could probably be a hardworking wide player now, I think Dickov, like running the channels. But yeah, you think of Defoe getting onto flick-ons and, you know, often Peter Crouch, who was playing up there, up front there with. I don't really see who the Jermaine Defoe is in modern football. Maybe Eddie Nketiah, that kind of penalty box striker. I think Nketiah did okay, you know, when he had that spell up front for Arsenal. But I think he was spoken about in terms of his limitations as much as his strength. So players like that, I I don't see many of them in the modern game at the moment. The first game I ever went to was uh, Liverpool Coventry City and it was Emil Heskey flicking it on for Michael Owen. And that just felt like the perfect big man, little man. I, the thing is, well, I don't think that these sorts of players, these small poachers are quite nurtured in the same way anymore from the academy level. And Liam, you might know more about that than, than me, but the, the Michael Owen, the Sergio Agueros of this world as a kind of an out and out goal scorer, poacher solely uh, are really there anymore. They're, a lot of players are, exist as a, basically how, how often do you hear it when you're thinking of someone who's rumored with a certain club to sort of say they can play anywhere across the front line? Yeah. You know, and I don't feel like you have a kind of a specialist in the, the the top end of the field anymore. And it's a real strength to know that you can play anywhere across the front line. But as a consequence, you you lose that sort of typical small poacher type player. Yeah, I think the specialist has massively sort of died out because now you, you're playing with one striker for most teams. Um, even I think Inter are a great example that often play with two. Uh, even with Dzeko and, and Martinez when it's not Lukaku playing, um, they aren't you know, fixed in terms of it's always Jekko playing flick-ons or receiving back-to-goal. I think Lotaro's back-to-goal game is really good and often Jekko's running the channels when they beat uh, Milan in the in the Super Cup. The goal that Jekko scored is from running in behind on, on the angle. Um, I think we spoke about this with Chelsea, the idea of having these sort of forwards, these forwards that play somewhere in the front line and you can play two or three of them together, but, um, you know, they're not really going to be fixed. They're going to interchange. And I think that's because teams tend to want the ball a lot more now, you know, right the way through the Premier League that most teams want to play a form of possession football, at least at some point um, they want to keep the ball playing long and playing flick-ons is more of a territory-based sort of approach you know teams still do that Brentford do it exceptionally with, with Tony to Embuemo and they're the more sort of fixed I think styles that um, that you see and that has now dripped down into academy football where okay if that's the requirement of the team at the top then we need to develop players that are sort of more rounded and a bit more technical and I think that then is now why you're getting teams playing sort of two number 10s rather than sort of a, a strike partnership I think it's a wider issue that just European countries aren't really developing strikers anymore. I think a lot of them are coming from South America. Remember Arsene Wenger making that point about a decade ago. But you look at Spain and Germany, who were the two dominant nations about a decade ago, I'd say, just aren't producing many top quality strikers. I mean, they're producing so many kind of number 10s and or versatile attacking players who can play in various positions, but they don't have that many centre forwards. I mean, Germany are playing this like Fulkrug up front. I mean... He scored six and six at international level, so I can't question him. But I mean, he's playing in the second division for most of his career. It's it's just a bizarre situation, I think, that the, these these strikers are often like considered not quite top class, but they can just do a job for the team. It's it's weird. 
Spain have now called up Hosselu as well, who scored twice. Um, so it's, yeah, interesting to see, at least at international level, this um, sort of switch back towards more of a just box presence number nine, which maybe is because if you've got enough creative talent deeper down the pitch, then you don't need a number nine that can do so much technical stuff. Um, similar with what, you know, Haaland has got some, I think, fair critique this season, even for the sheer volume of goals that he scored, but you look at it and go, surely that's enough on its own. Well, maybe it's not because in the actual whole team level that if your team then can't retain the ball as well, you're turning it over more, City are conceding more goals. Obviously, I'm not solely attributing this to him, but um, you look at him scoring a number of goals, which are you know not a dissimilar amount to what four or five players playing a false nine role had scored before. Um, it's incredible to think that you can play that role so well and maybe not be the perfect solution for that team. Just to cap it off in terms of national teams, Roberto Mancini for the Italian national team called up Matteo Rotegui, um, who scored against England, didn't he, um, last week. And he was born and raised in Argentina and currently plays in the Argentine Primera Division. So uh, it shows their desperation as well in the national setup of just how much they need a forward because they haven't got many. Wow. I'd be fascinated to know, maybe there's been a, an article about this. I, I have looked. I'd be fascinated to know why he's playing for Italy. You know, he's lived his whole life in Argentina. I think he's got one Italian grandparent. Sicily, I think, yeah, from Sicily. You know, World Cup winners. Like, it's a good time to to be playing for Argentina. And he's playing for a country where he's, he's never lived there. South American champions as well. By it. Maybe he's not been invited to play for Argentina because they're World Cup winners and they're quite happy with their attacking players. Thank you very much. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, when you were talking about academy players and particularly ones of smaller stature, I can't think of loads of specific names right now, but following the, the EFL closely, we regularly see big six clubs sending uh, players on loan to championship or probably more often League One and League Two who are short, quick strikers who have brilliant goal returns playing PL2 football, who are really struggling to find a way to impact games in League One and League Two, where clearly, you know, the tactical demands are are different because these managers do not want to play them as a number nine. But as a winger, again, they're not they're not playing as a left winger for a League One, League Two team versus playing as a left winger for Liverpool under 21s in PL2. You're doing completely different things in completely different areas of the pitch. The pitch itself is completely different and the people you're playing against are completely different in their the way that they move and the way that they play. I, I find it so interesting and it's it's been a bit of a problem for a lot of highly rated prospects. Delighted you brought this up because this is one of the the reasons that sort of underpinned my master's dissertation where um, I was fascinated by strikers that would do really well at PL2 and go, you know, how can you be so good there? And there are, as you spoke about, contextual factors where, you know, things like the pitch, etc. But even stripping it back and saying, okay, what does the game itself look like? Um, and when I sort of broke down shots between an under 18, under 23 and first team level, um, the goals and the shots that were scored um, and the attack moves. So I broke this down right from, you know, how the possession started, the type of the attack, um, uh, had a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a lot more counter-attack shots, um, a lot more things in transition, uh, not as many sort of organised, expansive build-up sequences at academy level, which almost feels, you know, a bit surprising because you go, well, you know, there's not the atmosphere, you know, it's, you know, a lot more controlled, a lot more organised. Teams don't have to go out and press because, as you say, like, you know, your your job's not on the line. You can you can afford to lose a game because, you know, development, quote-unquote, is, is what's allowed. But, um, yeah, you get a lot fewer of those expansive, organised sequences and I think Aaron Connolly was a great example at Brighton when I watched him because he tore up the P- the PL2. And I was wondering if Fodor and Balogun might have the same thing from Arsenal where you can be more transitional. And admittedly, defences are going to be not as organised and less well-structured because um, players are just less experienced and less developed. But um, I think that having that adaptability and you see the goals he now scores in France that 
are making these clever sort of angled runs or scoring one-touch finishes with left foot, right foot, head off crosses. He's being that sort of adaptable player. And I think Connolly's goals, when you go back and look at them, a lot of them were on the counter-attack, dribbling 1v1, getting in the half space, cutting inside and scoring, um, which he then went and scored against Spurs um, when he first started playing, but just hasn't managed to do it since. And um, that, how you train that, I don't really know is really difficult because it's super strength when you're 18, 19 and you don't want to stop someone doing it, but you need to make them good to play at senior level too. Fascinating. What about old school wingers, chalk on the boots uh, types? Uh, clearly, there are less of them. Why do we think they've been evolved out of the game? I'd say the main reason is the rise of an attacking fullback just provides the, the crossing quality and the width and, and those kind of things. I also think, you know, looking back, it's almost weird that football was so obsessed with them for so long. Like if you're a right foot winger on the right, you're basically just crossing. I mean, okay, you can get into shooting positions, so you can pass inside, but if you're playing from the left, you can shoot, you can still cross and you can probably play more penetrative passes as well. So yeah, there's not many of them. I mean, there was a fun period around about 2010 where I think you just saw wingers literally just switch positions. So you had a lot who played their whole career on the left would then start playing on the right. I think now players come through as inverted wingers. They come through as cutting inside and shooting. And even the kind of last stand of them at the top clubs i think of jesus navas at manchester city and antonio valencia at manchester united they both became fullbacks late in their career so yeah they are really quite threatened i think probably don't really exist anymore i mean if you come in as a left foot winger who can just play on the left i don't think there's much demand for you at the top level now intrigued to see the transition of Bukayo Saka and Gareth Bale from sort of left back to uh, inverted right winger and I think speaking on the rise of sort of the, the overlapping fullback is because teams now I think are, are stronger and better defensively they can be more compact so for wingers to want to receive it wide and dribble inside where you're going to where all the traffic is and there's going to be more players more bodies uh, in the way that I think they tend to bleed possession quite a lot as well. They're going to be players that are taking shots often from distance um, or from sort of tough angles with a lot of pressure in the way. You've got to be really, really good. You're often scoring a repeatable kind of goal, which doesn't necessarily make you um, completely predictable, but I think there's less variety to their game than sort of um, other players and other sort of styles of doing it. So... I think it's just sort of managing that and a lot of teams now want to keep the ball. Uh, Pep has still used inverted wingers a lot this season in, in uh, Grealish and Mahrez, but for a security you know, control, he wants them to get the ball, dribble inside and they can recycle and switch play. So um, I think it's intriguing now seeing them be used in a completely different way of now almost maximising defensively. Um, it makes sense because if you receive the ball back to goal and you're an inverted winger, well, you're strong foot, you can play a big diagonal, a big switch pass because there's a right foot off the left. That's natural for you to play across that way. So uh, yeah, that's just how things evolve, I think. It's quite a fun WSL example with uh, Katie McKay, who's probably got the best left foot in in the division for Arsenal. And she either plays as an attacking left back or as an inverted right winger. She's never playing really on the left of midfield, which almost certainly would have been her position 15, 20 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, you think of all of the, the good wing backs and full backs now. You think Ben Chilwell, Rhys James, Andy Robertson... Kieran Tierney for Arsenal in the Premier League, but then someone who's like a speed merchant like Alfonso Davis at Bayern Munich or Alejandro Balde is doing really well at Barcelona. They're all fullbacks now or wingbacks who you would just absolutely associate with being a traditional winger in the, the 90s and the early 2000s. And to, to the guy's point, you can see it the other way as well, where someone who is a traditional winger um, in years gone by, like a 
Stuart Downing, for example. You mentioned who someone who's playing on the left now who could maybe play fullback. We've spoken about Dwight McNeil before as well. I think that he's someone who doesn't really play on the right hand side, but maybe could do or play on the as a as a left back kind of coming onto the play. But someone like a, an Aaron Lennon at Tottenham or thinking about this before like a David Bentley someone who is in the sort of a Trent Alexander-Arnold role it's it's completely kind of flipping on its head it, based on the year I think which is just really interesting to see I mean Lennon's a really good example isn't he because he was a pure winger he wasn't like a Theo Walcott who could go in behind and score goals I mean he was always on the outside of the opposition left back and it's probably no coincidence that towards the end of his career the only place where you know he was going to get game was Burnley who mm. were obviously the most old school side under Sean Dyche. I was intrigued that I think a few seasons ago now Pep sort of tried bringing them back a little bit. I remember Sane playing off the left and um, being really, really good there, sort of driving the outside and helps because his ball striking is really good. I think as we're seeing with sort of McNeil now where almost their best assets are their ball striking. It's not really their technical, physical ability to beat players 1v1. Um, I think he played studying off the right a bit as well. So I, I think give it some time, these will become valuable assets because there's going to become fewer of them they become more rare um, and there'll be times in games where you know that becomes a, a valuable system if you haven't got a, uh, haven't got a fullback that is as good at overlapping then it suddenly becomes useful I'm, I'm still quite intrigued as to how teams go about defending an, an inverted winger that I'm really surprised you haven't got more maybe more so in specific games more sort of inverted fullback so that you've got a player defending the winger on their strong side um, I guess you can kind of compensate for it a lot more by having a central midfielder come, come across and cover um, or if you've got a wide midfielder they can track back and make it a 2v1 but um, I'm surprised that's not seen the sort of domino effect that we've seen of you know number four resulting in the number 10 um, and things like that. Well, yeah, I know that Tommy Yasu did that against Liverpool fairly recently, but I don't know whether that would be viewed as a defensive tactic as well. So maybe a reason why more teams aren't doing it is because it is mainly to contain. And then when you think they're in possession, maybe not as strong, you know, going forward. So I don't know whether that's maybe why it's maybe not used as much. But for, for teams who maybe deem themselves to be weaker against stronger opposition, maybe it should be used more. During that last discussion, the classic, where would David Beckham play? were he to be a footballer in 2023 spr sprang up in my head michael it's always it's always said that he'd be trent right because that you know his skill set probably fits the 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 right back now much more than a, a right winger or god forbid beckham as an inverted left winger <laughs> seems like a horrible idea um where where do you stand on that cuz i enjoy the conversations about where would x play now but i also think they're kind of fraught with this is a waste of time because X player probably wouldn't exist in that form had they come through in a different decade. That is true. It's chicken and egg, isn't it? Yeah. I remember one of my first posts on my blog, Zonal Marking in 2010, was discussing where Beckham would play at uh, Milan side playing 4-3-3. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there was kind of, I think, four options. I didn't consider him playing from the left, which sums yeah. up the fact inverted yeah. wingers weren't such a thing at that point. But yeah, I mean, he could have played on the right wing. He could have played as a number eight. He could have played as a deep line player in the PLO role. Or maybe he could have played at right back. I think if he was coming through, I think he'd be a number eight, to be honest. I think people underestimate. Or maybe they don't underestimate. But he was a really hardworking, really energetic, quite defensively diligent player. Sounds quite Jordan Henderson-y. Yeah, Henderson. And his crossing could be De Bruyne. You know, I think that's the kind of equivalent comparison. I don't think he really had the tactical 
intelligent to play in that deep lying role. He did it once for England against Northern Ireland in a 1-0 defeat and that was never tried again. And I don't quite think he had the, well, he didn't have the speed to play as a winger. He could play as a right back. Maybe. I mean, he, he, he says he's hard working, diligent yeah. out of possession and he can swing in a deep cross yeah, better than some... anyone that ever existed. Yeah, I mean, Alexander-Arnold is kind of a template for him, I suppose. Uh, tough to know how you actually do literally defensively when you're defending the back post and stuff like that yeah. without seeing it. Again, I think he did that once for England in the last 20 minutes of the game against Trinidad and Tobago in 2006. When I th was it his cross that Crouch headed in? Here's Beckham. One great cross from the England skipper. One big leap from Peter Crouch! Get ready to dance! Peter Crouch has scored again! But that's the most kind of attack-minded substitution Sven Goran Eriksson never made just putting Beckham to right back and I think he brought an Aaron Lennon actually to play ahead of him but I don't think he ever played there from the start Beckham I think you did an interesting piece a year or two ago now Michael where you sort of wrote about how people forget just how elite sort of professional footballers are particularly at the top level and I see a lot of stuff incredible on... concept for an article wasn't it <laughs> these guys are good these guys are good but like honestly good no, no, but seriously. Um, but I, a lot of the discourse I see now is that people like Trent Alexander-Arnold are called system players as a, as a genuine insult to them. That Almost as if you take them out of this um, this style, this approach, this role or position that is curated for them and they will just fall apart and disintegrate as if they can't do anything else ever. And of course, they're um, only going to look good at the exact role they need to do because that's their job. Their job is not to play a different approach, a different role. And you take them out of that team, you play them slightly differently. I think we often see it of players between club level and international level and go, oh, you don't do that for your club. How are you able to do that internationally? And it's like, well, these are really, really good players that are really adaptable. The tweaks they need to make to their game are probably more minute than we think. They're not as concrete and things are a lot more fluid and, and changeable now. So I'd, of course, Beckham has a certain style because he grew up playing in a certain era of football, coached by coaches that coach in a certain way, which is different to now. And he would be a different player now because he would need to play in a different type of football. And I think people really, really underestimate that. Um, and I think it's just a real bias that we need to move past in football generally. I think I did that article, I think it was midway through the Olympics when I was just had three weeks of watching commentators go, oh, she only took up the pole vault 18 months ago and she's mm. got a bronze medal. And I can't think, I'm thinking... How good do you have to be? Mm. Who's, how many people have tried the pole vault? Have you? I've not tried the pole have vault. Have you, Ali? I would never try that. No. I, I don't know how good these people... Everyone's everyone's tried to kick a ball. You have to be really good to be a professional footballer. Yeah, I'd go as far as to say that they are the best on the planet. Okay, let's go through a, a couple more positions and see if, if there's anything interesting that we can chuck up thanks to, to David's uh, teaser. Centre-backs. Talk to me about centre-backs, guys. I might be showing my age here, but I don't ever remember seeing a real sort of sweeper centre-back growing up. Um, I know Connor Cody's... You hear a lot about them, don't you? But So, so I'm told from the from the dark ages. Um, but no, I'm, I'm just intrigued as to how that sort of style and that sort of approach can very quickly sort of change. And now, I mean, everyone sort of from my generation speaks about Rio Ferdinand being the first sort of ball-playing centre-back and how it's almost gone completely the other way of now. I think one of the primary remits for an academy centre-back isn't going to be their out of possession stuff. It's going to be, what can you do on the ball? I think that's the general focus anyway in academy football and in English football now. But um, amazed to see that that is almost, yeah, you are part of the first line of attack now. Um, and the sweeper I associate, please correct me if I'm wrong, as something that was more defensive, more a covering thing. Yeah, absolutely covering. I mean, traditionally was someone who, who was really intelligent, would read the game very well, not necessarily the most physical player. 
Um, but yeah, it doesn't really exist. I mean, you kind of have a, a kind of modern interpretation of it with David Luiz at Chelsea or Conor Cody at Wolves, but it's not really the same thing because it's not man-marking. Um, if you get a couple of spare hours, go back to the 1998 UEFA Cup final between Lazio and Inter, and you can see a player by the name of Salvatore Frazi, who was maybe the last proper sweeper in Italian football and was kind of held up as this poster boy for the Italian way. And uh, a couple of managers quite liked him. So Gigi Simone, who was his manager at that point, really favoured him. Whereas when Roy Hodgson was there, he was like your central midfielder. If you can't, if you can't defend, if you can't, you know, play as a proper centre back, if you're just covering and reading the game, you're a central midfielder. So that was the extent of the difference between a sweeper and a centre back, if you like. Does that surprise you, given how many teams now play a back three? That you know, it's not like that. Uh, player has sort of disappeared in terms of the you know they're not no longer there they're just doing something completely different a little bit I mean I suppose it's it's the ones like Louise and Cody who are I mean probably more midfielder in style I think I mean certainly Cody used to be a midfielder didn't he Eric Dyer as well yeah yeah that's probably a good example but um, I think it's about the man marking really it was just Italian size who played literal man marking and then you had to have someone to cover but you know, you obviously can't play an offside trap. You can't dominate the game where you do that. You can't push teams up the pitch. So, yeah, I think that was quite an interesting one because that position ceased to exist because of a wider tactical shift. Have any goalkeepers been involved at the game or any particular profile of, of goalkeeper? Mark, you're a big goalkeeper fan. <laughs> I am a fairly big goalkeeper fan. I've got the, the height of a goalkeeper as well, you might say. Um, I think that it's it's an obvious one. You're not going to have too many, like the, the sweeper position can cease to exist and you can just completely build a different system. A goalkeeper always has to be a goalkeeper. So it's a bit of a tricky one to kind of analyse in that regard. But I do think there's there's been a massive evolution in terms of the, the amount that a goalkeeper has to be strong on the ball um, and be able to distribute it. We've spoken about that a lot. Um, we did a whole episode on it, I believe, as well. But I looked into the numbers on this as well. So from a numerical perspective, the, the, there's data to show that in 2000, 2001 season, there was no regular Premier League goalkeeper who had a pass completion rate of more than 62%. Nice. Okay, So the average rate, the average pass completion rate for a goalkeeper that season was bang on 50%. Cut to this season, and I looked at it, all players who have played 500 minutes or more, the average pass completion rate, 67.4%. And no regular player has a pass completion rate below 50%, which was the average 20 odd years ago. Jordan Pickford is the lowest with 54%. So it shows just slowly but surely that the bar for retaining possession, and that's obviously a tactical thing as much as anything, has just continued to grow and grow and grow. So there's definitely been a, um, a shift in that regard of how good you have to be on the ball, but also how much you're tactically utilized as a player within the build-up um, and have, having to have so much importance placed on a goalkeeper on the ball. Yeah, those stats are really interesting and it's undeniable there's been a big focus on it in recent years. But I think it's also been a gradual process as well. I mean, you can go back to the 70s and the, the Dutch side of the World Cup. You know, they played a goalkeeper who was, I think, barely capped before the 1974 World Cup, I think, because he was better with his, his feet. I think this is a funny one because I don't, necessarily think there's an example of a player at the moment who is a really good shot stopper but can't use his feet so isn't playing at the top level I mean I know Guardiola turned away from Joe Hart and brought in Bravo and then Edison but I think Hart's shot stopping had been questionable as well you know? people often talk about De Gea in but these terms right they do but he's he's still playing for Man United yeah, yeah. I mean maybe you but could for how much longer well yeah but because he's how old is it I mean he's 30s but I mean he's 
he's played there for 10 years without any real challenge. Maybe you could throw the Spain thing at him. I mean, that probably works better because he's, I mean, he's a better goalkeeper than your lad Sanchez, <laughs> in my opinion. So how he's not getting in the squad when Sanchez, I mean, Sanchez can't get in the Brighton team ahead of Luke Steele and he's still getting in the Spain team. So maybe, still. would I call him Luke, Luke Steele? Steel. Yeah. Him as well. That's a shame. And him as well. So maybe in Spanish football, they're even further ahead of us and Ten Hag in terms of wanting footballing goalkeepers. But I don't know. I tend to think the one, you know, Joe Hart's the poster boy for this. But it's not like his, his shot stopping was, was good enough either. Okay, we, we've spoken more about fullback evolution than, than any other position. We've done full episodes on that. So I think we'll probably uh, leave that. I think probably said everything that there is to say on that front. Just, just let's finish on the centre of the park, central midfield, roles, central midfield, player profiles, anyone in particular that springs to mind. Is there anything in that part of the pitch where someone from 20 years ago, you, you just couldn't imagine that sort of player playing in a, in a top team nowadays? I suppose it's a wider point, but I've seen, you know, interviews with Roy Keane and stuff and the, the idea of a box-to-box midfielder. You had Keane and Scholes, Vieira and Petit, someone who when one would go, the other would sit and vice versa. Whereas now, I think it's maybe just a wider point on the evolution of midfield that there are so many specialised roles now that you don't really necessarily see someone who is as much of an all-rounder. I think the obvious exception to that at the moment is probably Jude Bellingham, but more that he's able to fulfill all of those roles rather than doing them all at once. Although that is, there are maybe exceptions to that. So I don't know whether as much as anything talking about eras and midfielders, it's more just that the what they're being asked to do has, has changed and it's far more specialised than maybe in years gone by. I don't know if that's fair to say. Sort of flipping the um, idea on its head, I'd love to see Declan Rice play sort of 20, 30 years ago. Um, I think his style is really interesting because, and I don't think it's helped by the other midfielders he has around him uh, in the West Ham team. I don't think it's set up to be the most expansive team. And obviously he looks very different for England, but I think that role suits him where he's got better progressors around him and he can play. He played really well against Italy in that single pivot of receiving under pressure, sort of popping passes left and right. And often plays the pass before the pass that breaks through the press. Um, so he definitely has a role, but his best moments for me are those sort of big driving runs in transition where, you know, often he'll be making the tackle or he'll pick up a loose ball. He's really, really good with his defensive positioning and sort of starting attacks and making regains, but just drives so well with it. Mm. Um, we, we'll go almost box to box with the ball. Um, you think sort of 20 years ago when the games were maybe a bit more transitional, um, the pitch sort of had more space to use because teams were wider and, and um, you know, less compact. And I just assume I could be wrong, but less focused on defending um, and defensive shape. And, um, you know, the same with sort of Wan-Bissaka on the, the defensive front, um, having players that feel not quite like out of a generation, but um, yeah, you think how they need to adapt their game more. Uh, and it was really telling when they played Leicester just before the World Cup, who had a uh, Sumario play in the pivot and was a considerably better forward passer than both Rice and Suchek. And um, both Leicester's goals, I think he plays either, he plays the assist for maybe Barnes I think um, for the second goal and plays a real good through ball uh, in the build up to the first and uh, when you see it sort of two teams that have that player versus don't it's really quite a striking difference well that was good fun thank you very much Liam, Michael, Mark enjoyable episode lots to think about uh, lots of interesting points made lots of interesting examples as well so thank you guys but mainly thank you to David Lomax he's my person of the week what a guy great question loved it so be like Dave Lomax. You can tweet us with any episode ideas that you have. You can comment on each 
episode of the podcast on the episode page on the Athletic app. If you can do that, uh, then do get involved that way as well. We love hearing from you. And as evidence this week, we can get at least 50 strong minutes out of a good topic. So get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic. Michael, Mark, Liam and their colleagues providing the best football coverage that exists, both online and offline. I'd say theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the place to go to sign up today, and you'll pay just one pound a month for the first year of your subscription. Subscribe to The Athletic today and make sure you're signed up to this podcast feed as well to get next week's episode and all the juicy bonus episodes as well that we're providing for you this year on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.